you want to take your Bible and find your place at 1 Corinthians, we have just a couple of more messages after today's message in this series where we are focused on the gospel. If you don't have a Bible with you, the verses will be on the screen. And let me tell you what I'm going to do. We're going to read through these 14 verses, and then I'm going to come back to them during the course of the sermon, and I'm going to act as a tour guide, if you will. We're going to walk that pathway again, and I'm going to stop, and I'm going to point out things to you along that pathway that you might have missed or you might overlook if you're not careful to notice. Now, you may see them as we read through the first time, but I want to make sure you see it on that second pass uh, as we take this tour uh, down this gospel road. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 18. For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and bring to nothing the understanding of the prudent. Where is the wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the disputer of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of this world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world through wisdom did not know God, it pleased God through the foolishness of the message preached to save those who believe. For Jews request a sign, and Greeks, as Gentiles, seek after wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified to the Jews a stumbling block and to the Greeks foolishness. But to those who were called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God, and the wisdom of God. Because the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. For you see your calling, brethren, that not many wise according to the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble are called. But God has chosen the foolish things of the world to put to shame the wise. And God has chosen the weak things of the world to put to shame the things which are mighty. And the base things, that's the insignificant things of the world and the things which are despised, God has chosen. And the things which are not to bring to nothing the things that are, that no flesh should glory in his presence. But of him you are in Christ Jesus, who became for us wisdom from God and righteousness and sanctification, and redemption, that as it is written, he who glories, let him glory in the Lord. Let's pray together. Father, I ask now that you will guide us into your word. But we're taking a journey down this pathway, and it's so important that on this tour that we not miss some very important points, things that you just you don't want to pass by. And Lord, sometimes we're reading through so quickly, we're taking the journey down the pathway so fast that we fail to notice them. And I pray today, as I seek to point them out, that you will help me and draw our attention to them. In your name I pray, amen. To help you understand these 14 verses, and what I want you to see as we take this journey again in a few minutes, back down this pathway that we've just read, I need to take a little bit of time at the beginning here to describe for you what it was like living in the city of Corinth. 
Mary and I were privileged back when we were uh, just had been married two or three years to take a trip to Israel, and then coming back, there were two legs to the trip, one that took us to Rome and the other that took us to Athens, Athens, Greece. And when we were in Athens, Greece, we then took a short trip over to Corinth. If you ever get a chance to make that trip, you want to make that trip over to Corinth and see this ancient city, the ruins of this ancient city. But the city, 2,000 years ago, was not in ruins. Uh, It was one of the most uh, uh, popular cities in the Middle East, in that eastern part of the world. When you think about Corinth, it was an important city in Greece. Important like Athens, which was about 50 miles to the east. It was an important city at that time in the world. It was a maritime city. Uh, Corinth is located on a, a part of it anyway, on an isthmus and, you know, a, a strip of land that connects two larger bodies of land and separates water. Part of uh, uh, the Corinth is located on that isthmus. And they had two ports, one to the east and one to the west. You know, going one direction, you could get out to the Aegean Sea. Going the other direction, you could get out to the Adriatic Sea. Now, you might wonder, what what difference does it make that they had two, at least two, navigable ports? Well, because that means a lot of commerce is coming in and going out. Uh, People were able to bring things from distances to those ports, unload them, and then from there, take them other places. Uh, Things were able to be taken from Corinth to other places on those ships. And so, it's, it's a an idea of commerce that's going on. This isn't just people coming to Corinth. This is commerce that is taking place. Not only were there these navigable ports, they had a, they had a, a, a trade route by foot, a trade route that went right through Corinth. And so you could come in by sea or you could come in by foot And that meant that there's a lot of people in the city of Corinth. It's a very popular place to be. It's a place of commerce. It's a metropolitan city. Actually, we could say it's a cosmopolitan uh, city. And the reason for that is because they had people from everywhere coming to Corinth. Uh, People coming from sea and people coming by land. Different colors faces. uh, People with different languages and different uh, dialects. Uh, people that were coming from different areas of that part of the world. And so it was a cosmopolitan kind of a city. And yet it was a place where there was great uh, commerce going on. Ladies, you'll, you'll be interested to know that they had something called the Agora. The Agora. It was the Tanger outlets, uh, probably multiplied several times over of their day. It was outdoors, big uh, rectangular area, and inside the Agora, this marketplace, there were vendors that are set up everywhere around and in the middle of this, and you make your way through, and you're doing your shopping of all kinds and buying your goods and your wares. Things that have come by sea, things that have come by land, oftentimes ended up right there in the Agora, in that, that marketplace. And so what, what you see is a bustling city. You see a city that's filled with life. You see a city that's alive at day and it's alive at night. You see a city that's always got something going on and there's people of all kinds everywhere. But you know, anytime you get a city where there's a lot of money and there's a lot of people, there's also a lot of vice in that city. And they had the Acropolis in, in Corinth. You, you could see it from just about any place in Corinth. It's that hill off in a distance And on top of that Acropolis, there was the cult of Aphrodite. It was a cult. She was called the goddess of love. 
There were a thousand priestesses that serviced that temple, that cult. Now think about that for a moment. These are basically prostitutes. They're offering themselves to those who are supposedly worshipers that are coming to that temple. And the result is that you got all of this commerce. you got all of these ships coming and going. you got people in the foot traffic coming and going. There's bustling all around this city, all kinds of things that are going on. you got vice and immorality that's going on in the city. Something else about this city that will be interesting to you, it was the, the center of the Isthmian Games. They were a smaller version, are a smaller version of the Olympic Games. When we think of the Olympic Games, we think of gathering all of these famous athletes, these well-trained athletes from all over the world who come to a given place, whether it's winter or summer Olympics, coming to a given, given place and competing against each other. The Isthmian Games were a smaller version of that than what we have today. But they were nevertheless very popular and very important, and people would come to watch these games. It's the reason why when you read through 1 Corinthians, you see Paul use a lot of terminology that's athletic. He talks about running the race. He talks about fighting the fight. Why does he do that? He's using the terminology that comes out of that sports-minded culture where these Isthmian games were constantly, every two years at least, constantly going on. And where other kinds of sports, people were practicing and people were involved in all of these kinds of things. So you see this cosmopolitan city. It's bustling with activity. There's commerce going on, ships coming and going, people, foot traffic coming and going, a big center, uh, if you will, of, of a marketplace where people can buy and people can sell. There's wickedness. You can see it on the hillside over there uh, with the cult of Aphrodite, and then there's the sports that they loved. Uh, this particular city was, un, was not unlike Athens. It was a city that was filled with philosophers and the intellectuals, the elites, what we'll call the erudite of society, that, that upper echelon of society. Yeah, there were people that were pretty well off in the society, but I'm talking more now of the people who intellectually seemed to soar above the, the average person. And there were the philosophers, and there were the intellectuals and the elites, the erudite of society. And, and they would not argue in the classrooms. You know, today, if you want to meet the erudite, you go to the college classroom. But in these days, they would go out into the public arena and if you remember the story in Athens, when Paul was in Athens, it's in Acts chapter 17, he was fascinated by all that was going on. He was disturbed by all of the, by all of the idols to all of the gods, little g, gods. And they had one idol that was to the unknown God. And he was, he was so disturbed, Paul, that he went out into the, the Areopagus. It's a, it's a rock hill. Where, where all of these philosophers and these intellectuals, the erudite of that society, where they would go and they would stand around and they would listen to one another lecture each other. And then somebody would get up and debate and they'd go back and forth talking about all of these intellectual concepts, these philosophical concepts. They had something very similar. They didn't have an, an, an uh, Areopagus, but they had a place where these philosophers and these intellectuals, these elites... In the PhDs, if you will, multiple PhDs could be gathered together and they'd be debating each other. They'd be talking back and forth to each other. That's the kind of city that we're talking about. Uh, when you think of this city, you have to think of some of the things that they found there. Archaeologists have discovered the old Greek theater 
It's a huge outdoor theater where they had plays and various other things that went on as entertainment. Uh, one of the most famous uh, fountains, ancient fountains, is found in the city of Corinth. The Temple of Apollo was there. I've already mentioned the Agora, the marketplace. They had a magnificent gateway to the city. You, you can imagine a city that has this kind of trade, this kind of a marketplace, this kind of foot traffic and maritime traffic where there's games going on and sports that are happening and all of, this, all of the intellectuals are arguing and debating with one another out uh, in a place where others can gather and listen to them. You can imagine that they had to have some kind of a fancy gateway. And they have found a magnificent gateway that would have given entrance into that city. They found colossal marble statues. They found sculptures and figures and, and figurines. This was a well-known, famous, busy, cosmopolitan city. I mean, they had it going on in this city. Now, now think of it. It's not always a positive to be called a Corinthian. Sometimes they would refer to people as Corinthians because it meant you were somebody who was profligate or you were wanton or you were licentious. You were only interested in money. You were only interested in trade. You were only interested in what your, your mind could reason. You were only interested in, in things that were material in, in the world. And so they'd say, you're a Corinthian. And they used it as a, as a negative. But for the most part, people lived in this city or just outside the city, and they'd come to this city, and it was a bustling place to be. If you think of Corinth, try to think of maybe New York City. Maybe think of Times Square, where lots of people from lots of different places will gather. I don't know if the marketplace was, is as big there as it is as it was in Corinth, but you can understand this gathering place, this city, like New York City is a gathering place. Or, or if you will, think of Los Angeles or think of San Francisco. It's a busy city with the nightlife, with the sports and the activities, with the erudite, with all the things that are available so that it's always something going on in this city. Now, if you don't see that picture of what this city was like, you won't understand the contrast that the Apostle Paul gives to us in the verses that I just read to you a few minutes ago. Because you would have thought if the Apostle Paul was coming to such a famous city, such a well-known city with, with so much going on with the intellectual elites in the city, you would have thought what the Apostle Paul would do is he would have dressed up his message. He, he would have changed his approach. He would have done something different in coming to this city. It's not a little town somewhere. It's not a little city somewhere off in, in the distance. I mean, this is a metropolis this is a cosmopolitan city. This is where the sports are taking place, where the uh, PhDs are gathering. This is, this is where money's being made and money's being spent. This is where things are going on day and night. You think the Apostle Paul would have dressed up his message. But if you think that, you would have thought improperly. Because Paul didn't think the message that he brought them needed to be dressed up. As a matter of fact, what he'll indicate to us is that to dress the message up and to change the message and to adapt the message to the culture where he was going would have been to deny the power of the message that he preached. So there's three very humbling facts that I want you to follow with me and I want you to notice with me this morning. This first fact, the message wasn't impressive. 
the message wasn't impressive by Corinthian standards. That is, the message that Paul brought wasn't impressive by Corinthian standards. Now, I want you to go back for me, if you will. Just look at verse 17 for a moment. I want to connect the gospel to the message of the cross. I want you to see that these are the same. In verse 17, he says, For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel. But then notice verse 18, For the message of the cross. The gospel, the message of the cross, they're the same thing. If he's preaching the message of the cross, he's preaching the gospel. If he's preaching the gospel, he's preaching the message of the cross. So let me just stop here for a moment. Let me make sure you remember, what is the message of the cross? What is the gospel? The gospel is about the God-man, the one who was virgin-born, the sinless son of God, who lived in this world in obedience to his heavenly father and never broke the law of God in any way who was taken and unjustly tried and nailed to a tree. And that one, Jesus Christ, became the sin offering for you and for me. He took our punishment for sin on himself. He died in our place for the wages of sin is death. And Jesus died in our place. He gave up his life. They placed him in a tomb. They sealed the tomb shut. But on that Easter Sunday morning, Jesus Christ arose victorious over the grave. And he was seen, and he was seen, and he was seen, and he was seen by more than 500. At one time, it says that he was seen. That's the gospel. And this message, the message of the cross that Paul had and Paul preached, he comes to this erudite city, this busy metropolis, this cosmopolitan city, with all of these intellectuals that are around, with all of the commerce, with all of the trade that's going on, with all of the sports that's happening, and he walks right into this city, and he brings this message. Notice verse 18, for the message of the cross is foolishness to those who were perishing. It's foolishness. The message of the cross, that we would believe in somebody who died on a cross you understand that the cross was not a positive thing. We wear it as jewelry sometimes today. But the cross was a shocking image in the first century in that ancient world. It spoke of evil and shame and rejection and punishment. It was ugly. It wasn't something you wanted to wear. It was, think of the most detestable thing you could imagine and then shrinking it down so you could wear it as jewelry. You wouldn't do that. And they didn't do that. Because the cross was something that was horrible. It was an ignominious kind of a death that people had to die on a, on a tree, on a cross. And yet Paul comes to this, uh, this uh, cosmopolitan city with all of this activity and all of this marketplace going on, with all of the busyness and all of the sports, and with, with all the wickedness that's in the city, all of the money that's being traded, with all of the intellectuals. And Paul walks into the city and he says, the message of the cross is to those who were perishing foolishness. The Greek word for foolishness is moria, moros. You can hear the word, can't you? What word it gives to us? The word moron, moronic. When I was growing up, I could never say that word. If I said that word, I got in big trouble and I got tanned. I got, I got disciplined. You couldn't say moron, moron or moronic. You weren't allowed to do that. But that's exactly what Paul is saying. Paul is saying, I came to this important city with all of the glitz and the glitter, 
with all of the pomp and the circumstance in this city, I came to this city with a simple message. It was the message of the cross. And those who heard that message, many of them, the ones that were perishing, thought it was moronic. You're a moron to believe in a message like that, this, that somebody who died on a Roman cross could somehow be the answer to all of life. Who could imagine such a thing? And you can hear the intellectuals, can't you? You can hear the erudite, can't you? You can hear them out wherever they're doing their arguing of their, their uh, logical points and their philosophical points, talking about how foolish it is to believe what Paul is preaching. That's exactly what Paul said would happen. The message of the cross is foolishness. Notice, to those who are perishing. They're not going to perish one day. They're already perishing. Did you know that if you haven't come to the cross and put your, foot in, put your faith in Jesus Christ, do you, do you realize that you are already perishing? You are already under the condemnation of God. You're not waiting for his condemnation. You're already under his condemnation. John chapter 3, verses 16, 17, and 18. You're already under his condemnation. And people hear the message of the cross in this uh, cosmopolitan city and they say, that's moronic. You're a moron to believe such a thing like that. How foolish you are. That's what the perishing say. But notice, but to us, you Corinthians, to whom I'm writing and to, to me and others, to us who are being saved, it is is the power of God. Wow. Did you realize that you're being saved? If you've come to the cross and put your faith in Jesus Christ, put your faith in the gospel, did you know that you're being saved? The moment you put your faith in Jesus, you were saved from the penalty of your sin. Every day as you let Christ work in you, you're being saved from the power of sin. And one day when he comes again, you'll be saved from the presence of sin. But the power for that salvation to be at work in your life is by way of the message of the cross. The power is not in the glitz and the glamour. The power is not in the screens and the lights. The power is not in the show you put on. The power is not in how dramatic the preacher can be. The power is not in how erudite the one is who is speaking to me, who's lecturing to me. The power is in the gospel. Power is in the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ. You know, somehow we think we got a better way than God. We know more than God knows. I mean, Paul, don't you understand? You're going to a cosmopolitan city. You got people here. I mean, you got the intellectual of the intellectuals that are there. You got the philosophers of the philosophers there. Don't you understand, Paul? These are the people who've got the money. They got trade going on. They're living in nice places. They got opulence. They got their businesses down in the Agora. Don't you understand, Paul? You got to do something with your message here. You got to accommodate this. Got to make it a little more appealing. And Paul says, I came to you with the message of the gospel, the message of the cross. To those that are perishing, it's moronic. But to those of us who are being saved, we know it to be the very power of God. Think about it for a moment. Think about it for a moment. 
But what, what would it be like if you walked onto our college campus into a philosophy classroom, into a psychology classroom? You walked onto that campus and you stood up in front of that classroom with that professor standing there and you said, let me tell you the answer to mankind's greatest need. And you said, his name is Jesus. The class would think you were moronic. The professor would probably laugh at you. How could something that happened 2,000 years ago make any difference to us today? And that's exactly how they felt when Paul came to the city. And Paul is reminding you, he didn't dress it up. He didn't change it. He didn't adapt it. He didn't, he didn't come to you and say, you know what, I'm going to use the language of the philosophers and I'm going to use the language of the logicians and I'm going to use the language of the erudite. He said, I'm going to come and I'm just going to tell you the simple message. Jesus died for your sins. He was buried and he rose again and you must believe in Jesus to be saved from your sins. And Paul said, that is the power of God. Think about that. Take it to your college classroom. Oh, no, preacher, i got to dress it up. No, no, you don't either. Power isn't in all those things that are a matter of show. The power is in the gospel itself. And he goes on in verse 19 because he's going to show you the wisdom of God here. He uses an Old Testament quote for it's written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and bring to nothing the understanding of the prudent. We'll come back to that in a few minutes. But then with a victorious sound in verse 20, these aren't questions as if he's inviting people to come. He's, he's asking these questions, where are they? Because there aren't any. Where is the wise? That's the Greek philosopher. Where is the scribe? That's the Jewish scholar. Where is the disputer of the age? That's the, uh, the rhetorician, the one who has this oratorical skill and able to stand before everybody. I mean, in the presence of God and before the wisdom of God, they don't even exist. They're never going to argue against God. They'll never be successful. Where are these? My wisdom, he goes on, has not God made foolish? He's made foolish the wisdom of the world. He's made foolish the wisdom of the philosopher. He's made foolish the wisdom of the erudite and the intellectual. He's made foolish their wisdom. They stand out there with their human reasoning. And they think they can figure out the answer to life. And they can figure out the way to freedom. And they can figure out how to help people deal with guilt. And they can figure out the conscience. And they can figure out all of these things without God. The Apostle Paul comes and he says, let me tell you something. They can't figure anything out. The only way that any of those things ever happen in anybody's life is that they hear a simple message, the message of the gospel. And God is the one who makes foolish all of their reasoning and all of their logic. He makes it foolish. He goes on, verse 21, for since in the wisdom of God, the world through wisdom, through their logic and through their reason did not know God. Now listen. It pleased God through the foolishness of the message preached to save those who believe. Wow. You hear what he says? I came to you in this cosmopolitan city with all these erudite people, with all the opulence, 
where all the shows go on, where all the sports go on. And I came to you not with the wisdom of men. I came to you with the wisdom of God. And the wisdom of God is wrapped up in a very simple message, the message of the gospel. And I'm not going to change it. And I'm not going to adapt it. And I'm not going to try to make it more fancy. And I'm not going to add human logic to it and human reason to it and human philosophy to it. I'm not going to stand there, God in essence is saying. I'm not going to stand there and argue this point because nobody can argue this point against God. The gospel is what changes people's lives. And when they believe in the gospel, they're saved, period. Notice what he says in verse 22. For the Jews request a sign and Greeks seek after wisdom. Both of them want power. One of them wants power that's shown in some kind of mighty act. Other wants power that comes through the mind. But both of them want power. And the Jews come along and they say, show us a miracle. As if God is some kind of a monkey grinder kind of a thing. You know, we're going to flip you a little coin. You give us, you give us a miracle here. He realizes that the Jews in the, in the Gospels repeatedly asked Jesus for miracles. And here's the un, unbelievable thing. Jesus was doing miracles all around them. He was giving sight to the blind and opening the ears of the deaf, causing the lame to walk. He even raised the dead. But when they're standing with Jesus, they want to be able to flip him a coin and Jesus is going to do him a miracle on the spot. You don't control God that way. And they were asking for a sign. And you got these that are the, the, the Greeks that are, are into their wisdom and into their philosophy and into their logic and into their reason, human logic and human reason and human philosophy. And they want to control people, have power through their mind to control people. And Paul says, the message I brought you it was foolish. Just look at verse 24. Excuse me, verse 23. They want a sign. The Jews want a sign. The Greeks want wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified. To the Jews, it's a stumbling block. To the Greeks, that's the Gentiles, it's foolishness. It's moronic. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God, and the wisdom of God. Do you hear what he says? For all of the erudition that's in this city and all of the philosophy, human philosophy and human logic, for all of the, the, the intellect that's in, involved in this city, right in your very midst is the answer and you can't even see it. It's the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ. It's the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. I wish I could get us all to understand this. Yes, we should do things that are appropriate things to get people's attention. But ultimately, what we must do is make sure that we always communicate the simple message of the gospel. It's not about how fancy we can be on the flat platform. It's not about how dramatic we can be on the platform. It's not about how many light changes we can make on the platform. It's about the gospel. Unfortunately, in the world we live, simple gospel preachers are going away quickly. And we stand behind our pulpits and we offer human logic and human reason and human philosophy. 
when what people so desperately need to hear is that the answer to life's problems is in a person, and that person is the Lord Jesus Christ. And looking anywhere else is a waste of your time. Jesus is the one who can make you free. Jesus is the one who can bring you liberty. Jesus is the one who can bring you forgiveness. Notice verse 25, because the foolishness of God. He's using hyperbole, exaggeration. God's not ever foolish and he's not ever weak, but that's how people think about the cross. Because the foolishness of God is wiser than men and the weakness of God is stronger than men, the cross can do what the reasoning of man can never do. Can I I say something and not make anybody mad? Oh, yeah, right. I don't know how many people I've know, known that decided they were going to go into counseling and went to college to become counselors because they couldn't solve their own problems. So they thought that they could go to counseling and learn how to solve their own problems, then they can go help somebody else solve their problems. You understand what I'm saying? Do you understand what I'm telling you? I'm not saying that there's not a need for counselors. I'm just telling you that if you don't come to this book and find Jesus Christ first, you will never find the answers you're looking for. You will never find the answers you're looking for. Jesus is the only one who can change the life. And here these people were. They saw Paul, they listened to Paul, they weren't impressed by him, they weren't impressed by what he had to say, they thought he was foolish, they thought his message was moronic, they thought he was wasting his time, they couldn't understand his, his language, they didn't, couldn't comprehend that he wasn't interested in philosophy, and he wasn't interested in human reasoning and human logic, and he just came preaching. Jesus died for your sins, was buried and rose again. And Jesus will save you if you'll trust him. Jesus died and was buried and rose from the grave. And he'll save you if you'll just trust him. Jesus died and was buried for your sins. And he rose again. And he'll save you if you'll just trust him. And he just kept saying it over and over in the middle of this cosmopolitan city. Don't you think there might have been somebody who said, hey, hey, Paul. Hey, come over here, Paul. I got a seminar going going to show you how to do the gospel in a better way. And Paul just brushes it aside. And Paul says, Jesus died for your sins. He was buried and he rose again. And if you'll trust him, he'll save you from your sins. The message wasn't impressive by Corinthian standards. And may I just remind you, the message of the gospel isn't impressive to most people today. They look at you on a Sunday morning thinking that those are a bunch of morons. If you're looking for acceptance in this world because of the message you have believed You are looking in the wrong place. This world will never accept the message. It will always be foolishness in the world in which we live. But those that are called, by the way, that's God's divine act. To those that are called, they know it to be the power of God to salvation. Hey, let me show you what happens when you come to the cross. Look at verse 30. I'm going to jump ahead on this journey. 
I'm gonna jump ahead and I'm gonna show you one of the sites on this, on this, on this pathway, verse 30. But of him, that means but of his agency, of his power by Christ. You are in Christ Jesus who became for us wisdom from God. I mean, this wisdom that's found in the gospel and in the crucifixion, this wisdom from God, listen to what it does for us. It brings us righteousness, sanctification, and redemption. Righteousness has to do with the law courts where you're declared to be righteous. You're declared to be forgiven or justified, if you will. Sanctification has to do with the temple where things are set apart for God and made holy. And redemption has to do with the slave market where you went in and you purchased a slave. Jesus goes in and he purchases you and sets you free. Do you see what happens through the gospel? Positionally, you are justified. Positionally, you are set apart to God. And positionally, you are set free from the power of sin in your life. So let me just stop here and make somebody else upset with me. All of the remedial programs, all of the programs intended to get people off of drugs and alcohol that leave out the gospel may help them stop drinking and may help them stop their drugs, but they don't set them free. Only the gospel has the power to do that. Only the gospel has the power to do that. And so Paul comes to this city of erudition, this city with commerce, this city where there's people in and out and there's business going on and the marketplace is always happening, money's being spent and things are being sold and there's wickedness in the city and sports are going on everywhere and the intellectuals are all out debating with one another about reason, human reason and human logic. And Paul comes to this cosmopolitan city and he says, look guys, here's your only hope. Jesus died for your sins he was buried and he rose again and you have to believe in him. The message wasn't impressive by Corinthian standards. But secondly, number two, number two, the people, that is these Christians, weren't influential by Corinthian standards. The message wasn't impressive by Corinthian standards and the people weren't influential by Corinthian standards. He goes on in verse 26. He says, For you see your calling, brethren, that not many wise according to the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble are called. Now get the picture. Paul is not in Corinth, but he's imagining himself sitting with a congregation like this. You're the Corinthians today. You're the Corinthian believers. And Paul is thinking about all of you. And Paul looks around the congregation. He says, you know what? sort of an odd lot of people. This is the big lots of retail. You know, it's, it didn't make it into the Gucci store. You didn't get into the polo store. You sort of left over and got down here to the big lots, the odd lots. And he looks out across the congregation. He didn't say there weren't any intellectuals. Uh, he didn't say there weren't any that were not mighty. He didn't say that there weren't any that weren't uh, noble. But he said they're not many. They're not many. When you talk about uh, wisdom, you're talking about intellect. When you're talking about mighty, you're talking about 
the matter of influence. When you talk about nobility, you're talking about inheritance. He says, there's not many of you that are all that intellectual. There's not many of you that are all that influential. There's not many of you that have much of an inheritance at all. I mean, I look out, and y'all are sort of the big lots of people, sort of the odd lot. See? Pretty humbling, isn't it? By the way, you're looking at the ultimate odd lot right here. Notice what he says, verse 27. Paul looks out over the congregation, but notice it three times. Circle it in your Bible, underline it. God has chosen the foolish things of the world to put to shame the wise. And God has chosen the weak things of the world to put to shame the things which are mighty. And the base things, that's the insignificant things of the world and the things which are despised. God has chosen and the things which are not to bring to nothing the things that are. That no flesh should glory in his presence. You hear what he says? I went down to the big lots. God did. Jesus did. I picked out my people, called them to myself, saved them by a rather, uh, a rather moronic message to those that are perishing. And when you look at them, there's nothing all that impressive about them. But that's the incredible thing about our God. God takes ordinary people and God does extraordinary things. You're sitting here and you're thinking, well, I'm not all that smart. Yeah, neither am I. We got members of our staff that can run circles around me intellectually. I'm not all that influential. Neither am I. Who could have ever imagined a boy from Georgia who hid behind his mother's dress because he was afraid to speak to people would end up standing before people and preaching the word of God to them? I mean, I'm a pretty odd lot. Inheritance. I don't have an inheritance. My parents spent my inheritance. Most of it on vacation. Inheritance. Hey, I look around. There's nothing so special about most of you. Oh, we got a few amongst us. They're intellectual. You know, they have power. They may have inherited something. But, you know, most of us are just sort of a, an odd lot of people. But you know what? God takes ordinary people like you and me and he does extraordinary things. Because at the end, you know who gets the glory? God gets the glory. Think with me for a moment about Gideon. Gideon started out with 32,000 that was gonna fight against the Midianites and he ends up with 300. 135,000 Midianites. Sometimes do the math. How many Midianites to soldier, Jewish soldier, 300 of them. How many Midianites to Jewish soldier? Just do the math sometimes. And yet God destroyed the Midianites. Think about the apostles themselves. They're fishermen. One of them's a tax collector. Do you realize how badly tax collectors were hated? I mean, they're a rather odd lot. And yet, what does the Bible say about it, about them? They turned the world upside down. Think about John the Baptist. John the Baptist, he comes preaching, and he's in camel's hair, and he's eating locusts. I mean, somebody should have got him to a preacher's seminar and said, look, you got to dress a little better than this. you got to change your food. Everybody's going to think you're a nut. Listen to what John MacArthur says. According to God, the greatest man who ever lived apart from Jesus Christ was John the Baptist. 
He had no formal education, no training in a trade or profession, no money, no military rank, no political position, no social pedigree, no prestige, no impressive appearance or oratory, I guess. Yet Jesus said, truly I say to you, among those born of women, there has not arisen anyone greater than John the Baptist. This man fit none of the world's standards, but all of God's. And what he became was all to the credit of God's glory. Amen? Even in that passage I told you I'd come back to, verse 19, he's referring to, it's found in in, uh, the Old Testament prophets. He's referring to a time when the Assyrians were attacking Israel. And the Israelites used their human reason and their human logic. We got to get some help. But rather than turn to God, they turned to the Egyptians. That was their human logic and their human reason. But their human logic and their human reason and the Egyptians couldn't help them. God had to set them free. Do you get what he's saying? We use this human logic and we think we're something. Hey, I'm I'm thankful for guys like Tim Tebow. I love what Tim Tebow is doing. And I hear people say sometimes, you know what we need are more Tim Tebow's. You know what we really need? I'm thankful for all that we can get. Every Tim Tebow we can get, let's have him. But let me tell you something. God does most of his work not through Tim Tebow's, the superstars. God does most of his work through a rather odd lot of pretty ordinary people who understand the power is not in them. The power is in the message they declare. And they just come to the foot of the cross and they make themselves available over and over and over again. One last thing and I'll finish. The message wasn't impressive by Corinthian standards. The people weren't influential by Corinthian standards. And the approach, that is Paul's approach to bringing the gospel, wasn't intriguing by Corinthian standards. You understand intriguing? Wasn't entertaining. He didn't, he didn't flower it up with a light show and, a, and fireworks. Notice chapter 2, verse 1. We haven't been on this part of the journey. This is a new part of the journey. And I, brethren, when I came to you in Corinth now, when I came to you, I didn't come with excellence of speech or of wisdom. Excellence meaning high-sounding words, pompous words, or with human logic or human reason declaring to you the testimony of God. I didn't come with those things. For I determined not to know anything among you except the fireworks and the light show. Is that what it says? I came, I determined not to come to you except except to think about and consider only Jesus Christ and him crucified. I was with you in weakness in fear and in much trembling. We could talk about that, where Paul had been before he came to Corinth. Then he goes on, and my speech and my preaching were not with persuasive words of human wisdom. I didn't try to impress the erudite, but they were in demonstration of the spirit and of power. Why? that your faith should not be in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. Do you get it? Do you get it? The approach that Paul used wasn't intriguing. Preacher, if you just give us some fog on the stage. Well, most people say when I'm preaching, there is a lot of fog on the stage. 
if you just give us some fog on the stage, if you could just get the lights that spin around and we could just, you know, at the end of your sermons, we get the fireworks that go off. Now listen, I'm not necessarily opposed to all those things. I'm just telling you that the power of God is not in those things. The power of God is in the message of the cross. It's in the message of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And Paul came to the city. He didn't use highfalutin words. He didn't come using human reason. He didn't come with a fireworks show. He showed up with a simple message. And he preached that message on top of it. He preached it. Some people don't like the way I preach. They, they want conversation. We, we want to have a discussion with you on Sunday morning, Pastor. Well, that's a good thing in my office. I came to declare to you the truth of God today. I came to proclaim to you the gospel of Jesus and when you look at the man that was delivering this message or the manner in which the message was delivered, not with eloquence of words, not with purely human logic or reason, not with performance as in a drama, but with the power of God that's found in the scripture, there were lives that were changed forever. The message wasn't impressive to this cosmopolitan city and the people who were believers weren't that influential and the approach, well, it wasn't so intriguing either. But do you know what? When you preach the gospel of Jesus, the, the gospel of Jesus changes people's lives. Here's a song I want us to sing together as we bring this service to a close. What can wash away my sins? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. What can make me whole again? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. Can I just say to you today, you say, preacher, I, I, I want you to give me something spectacular. Do, do some miracle for me. Let me tell you about the greatest miracle that's ever been done. Jesus died for our sins. He was buried and he rose again. He is alive today to save all who will put his or her faith in him. There's the miracle you need. You don't need anything else. You may get a show somewhere else. You may get a show here on occasion, but you'll never get anything more powerful than the gospel itself. And we go and we tell people the gospel over and over and over again. Can I just encourage you? Stop worrying about what the world thinks about you. They think you're a nut. That you would get up on a Sunday morning and you would gather with other believers and you would listen to some guy open a Bible that's thousands of years old proclaiming a, a gospel that's 2,000 years old and tell you that that's the answer to man's greatest need in life. They think you're a moron. Take it on to the local college campus. Find out what they think about you. Get over it. To those of us who were called, we know this to be the power of God to salvation. And I'm not going to leave it. I'm not walking away from it. I'm not looking. I'm, I'm too old to worry about all the latest fads anyway. <laughs> I don't have time to work, worry about all the latest fads. 
I just got to get the gospel, the gospel, the gospel. Jesus died for your sins. He was buried and he rose again and he'll save you. He's the answer to your problem. He'll save you if you'll believe on him.